That is the sound you never want to hear. It is the sound of a warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. But whether you can hear that sound or not, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what happens when the so-called experts get it wrong. There's a war in Japan over who controls information about radiation levels and impact, as a number of this week's stories demonstrates. So in the interview slot, I'll be sharing audio from a presentation by U.S. Naval Quartermasters from the USS Ronald Reagan, who were among those exposed to high levels of radiation in the earliest days of the Fukushima disaster. They were part of what was supposed to be an humanitarian mission. But for them, it went tragically wrong. It's a heartbreaking story in human terms of radiation exposure, official lives, and a shameful ducking of responsibility by our military. That audio will be coming up in just a few minutes. Today is Tuesday, April 16, 2013, and here is the week's anti-nuclear news. The Environmental Protection Agency on Monday, April 15, formally published a new guide suggesting that public health standards could be relaxed dramatically in response to a nuclear attack or accident. Ha! I feel so relaxed already. The document published in the Federal Register references drinking water guidelines nearly 30,000 times less stringent than the agency's current rules. It also suggests that officials cleaning up after a radiological, quote, dirty bomb attack or a nuclear power plant accident don't have to follow EPA Superfund guidelines for environmental remediation. Ah, even more relaxed. The authors of a related report drafted for the Homeland Security Department have defended these recommendations in part by arguing that the 2011 Fukushima disaster in Japan contaminated an area the size of Connecticut and demonstrated the impossibility of a Superfund-level cleanup of that scope. We can't do it, so why pretend we can? The new EPA guide refers to International Atomic Energy Agency, the ultimate pro-nuclear group sitting at the top of the world at the U.N., Their guidelines that suggest intervention is not necessary until drinking water is contaminated 27,000 times less stringently than the current EPA rule of three picocuries per liter. Although the document is a draft published for public comment, it takes effect as an interim use guideline. In other words, this is what's guiding us right now. That means agencies responding to radiation emergencies may permit many more civilian fatalities. This would... In effect, increase a long-standing 1 in 10,000 person cancer rate, which is considered acceptable, to a rate of 1 in 23 persons exposed over a 30-year period. Count off the next 23 people you see, and one of them is it. The EPA's new guide is available for a 90-day public comment period that expires on July 15. That gives us a lot of time to put some very choice words together. The link will be up on NuclearHotSeat.com forward slash blog. In Southern California, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has ignored critical questions from two powerful members of Congress, just as the Government Accountability Office has seriously questioned emergency planning at the San Onofre nuclear plant. The two reactors have been shut down since January of 2012 because of faultily designed steam generators that were installed only two years before at a cost of $770 million. Since then, they have generated zero electricity. But Southern California Edison, SCE, and its partners have billed ratepayers over a billion dollars for them. On April 9. Senator Barbara Boxer, a Democrat from California, and Representative Ed Markey, a Democrat from Massachusetts, asked the NRC to keep Unit 2 shut until the safety issues can be fully vetted. Boxer chairs the powerful Senate Committee on the Environment and Public Works, which oversees the NRC. Markey is ranking Democrat on the House Energy and Commerce Committee. Powerhouses both of them. Boxer and Markey asked the NRC to respond by 4 p.m. on April 10. Instead, the Commission staff publicly issued a no-significant-hazard ruling that would speed the relicensing process, a precise renunciation of the Boxer-Markey concerns. Senator Boxer said, quote, 
The NRC staff proposal, which could pave the way for a restart of the San Onofre nuclear power plant before the investigation of the crippled plant is completed, is dangerous and premature. It makes absolutely no sense to even consider taking any steps to reopen San Onofre until these investigations look at every aspect of reopening the plant, given the failure of the tubes that carry radioactive water. In addition, the damaged plant is located in an area at risk of earthquake and tsunami, with 8 million people living within 50 miles of the plant. The staff proposal is beyond irresponsible. The Government Accountability Office report referenced said that there was no feasible evacuation possible from San Onofre. Anyone who has ever driven the 405 freeway during rush hour knows exactly how impossible it would be if everyone tried to get out of that part of Southern California at the exact same time. A disturbing piece from Los Angeles from Michael Collins of Enviro Reporter, one of our best investigative reporters. He took a sample of HEPA filter dust that was in his home in Santa Monica. He took 27 days of dust and analyzed them with his Geiger counter and found that there was a 419% higher per day count than in the previous period that he had tested. That means that a higher level, a significantly higher level of radiation has been picked up. This may be in relation to recent radiological releases from Fukushima that, according to TEPCO, didn't happen. We'll put a link to Michael's video explaining all of this. Again, on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, click on the blog page. This is a story I have been avoiding for a few weeks because we've had no direct nuclear tie-in, though it is what is suspected, but now there is a connection. This has to do with the dead and dying sea lions, meaning seals, off Southern California's coast. An unusual surge of stranded, dying and dead sea lions have littered Southern California beaches from Santa Barbara to San Diego since earlier this year. Especially the pups have been struggling ashore in starved, emaciated conditions, if they've managed to stay alive at all. Scientists say almost half the sea lions born this past winter have already died. Scientists seem to be determined to get to the bottom of this marine life tragedy. According to Victoria Harris of the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Agency, the NOAA, marine mammals are sentinels of the ecosystem. The NOAA has publicly announced that they consider radiation unlikely as the cause, but it wasn't ruled out. Excuse me, could we have an attack of common sense here? Marine mammals are the sentinels of the ecosystem. That makes them not just the canary in the coal mine, but the elephant in the living room. The big change in the Pacific Ocean is the amount of radiation coming from Fukushima. And now we are starting to see the impact on the marine environment. This is just the start. Time for the NRC report, which means our only possible response is duck! (laughs) There was a usual unusual event at Wolf Creek Nuclear Power Plant in Kansas, and that was a fire that lasted for more than 30 minutes. Why there are so many fires at nuclear power plants is not known, but they seem to break out quite regularly. There was an emergency declared. The fire was put out. No idea how it started. Also from the NRC, both the Vogel and Summer nuclear plant construction projects have failed to meet requirements of construction permits. Two or three supervisors early on in the project said this about Vogel, and as a result, they were fired. More than one person in a supervisory capacity was reported to be drunk on duty and fired at both locations. Considering there are only two nuclear power plant locations currently under construction, it looks like the nuclear industry is batting a thousand. Way to go, guys. And finally, in our NRC duck report, the NRC is moving forward with plans to outfit security guards protecting spent fuel storage sites at nuclear power plants with machine guns and other high-capacity weapons. Considering that this material has a half-life of 24,000 years, there's no word as to how long funding will be supplied for this measure or how long the bullets will actually be active. Oh, well, when it comes to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, like we say, Doc! But the U.S. has not cornered the market on idiocy when it comes to nukes. We have international news as well. 
German journalists have found barrels of radioactive waste in an underground valley in the English Channel. These barrels were dumped there half a century ago. 28,500 containers of low-level radioactive waste were dumped into the English Channel by British and the Belgians between 1950 and 1963. According to the International Atomic Energy Authority, IAEA, the containers hold an estimated 17,000-plus metric tons of radioactive waste, the equivalent to 58 trillion becquerels of radiation, just sitting there in the English Channel. According to Thomas Reuter, a journalist, in a report in Spiegel Online, he said, We think that there are still many more undamaged barrels below. Members of Germany's Green Party have called for the barrels to be removed from the channel. Ya think? International saber-rattling out of North Korea threatens a nuclear strike on Tokyo if Japan intercepts any North Korean test missiles. In comments carried by the Korean Central News Agency on Friday, April 12th, the Korean government officials in the capital city of Pyongyang lambasted Tokyo's standing orders to shoot down any North Korean missile headed towards Japan. Well, that makes sense. But here's the thing, North Korea. You don't have to nuke Tokyo to do them in. Just shoot a missile at Fukushima. The effect will be almost the same. Of course, then you'll be nuked and will be nuked, and the entire planet will be nuked, but hey, what's a little bit of eternal fire and damnation on the planet when it comes to posturing towards other political entities? In Canada, New Brunswick's Point Le Preux nuclear power station isn't sending any electricity to homes or businesses while it deals with yet another issue following last year's restart of the reactor. Sounds like San Onofre. Power at Point Le Preux has been reduced a number of times in recent weeks because plugs at each end of the fuel channels are too tight. New Brunswick Power spokeswoman Kathy Duguay says the power station was taken offline late Wednesday night to give crews an opportunity to adjust the chemistry of the water in the boilers. She said each time the power levels were changed, water in the boilers was disturbed. You think the water was disturbed? We're disturbed. By what's going on there. In addition, the original $1.4 billion project to refit the plant cost an extra $1 billion and took three years longer than expected. Yeah, sounds like San Onofre to me. Time for the Numbnuts of the Week Award, and I'm open to a suggestion as to how we can make a little audio sound around this just to announce it. We actually had three candidates, and it was close, but I think we have a clear winner here. In the number three position, it's a picture. If you go to check out Dining Choices in Limerick, Pennsylvania, on their website, you will see a photo of the Limerick nuclear power plant. Man, doesn't that make you just want to scarf down the shoe fly pie? So that's Numbnuts of the Week number three. Then there's this from Mary Olson of NEARS, Nuclear Information and Resource Service, our good friends in Washington, D.C. A golf course owner contacted TEPCO for remuneration for the radioactivity on the property, meaning on the golf course. TEPCO responded that there was no TEPCO radioactivity over there because clearly the radiation belonged to the golf owner because it was all on his property. How do they do that? How can they twist their brains in such a knot and still have any brain power at all? Oh, oh, wait a minute. It's TEPCO. Never mind. But here's the true numbnuts of the week, and this courtesy our friend Mochizuki at Fukushima Diary. And that is that there is going to be a triathlon held at Haruna Lake in Gunma in Japan. The entrants are meant to be from 6 to 18 years old. And as part of this triathlon, they are going to swim in the lake. Now, Haruna Lake is known to be a resort place where smelt fishing is one of their big sightseeing activities. However, even they couldn't conduct a radiation test on the smelt because they couldn't find any to sample. In 2012, they released 80 million eggs of pond smelt into the lake and they all died. So in 2013, when they wanted to test, they managed to collect only four smelt samples, four little bitty fish. The results, 340 becquerels per kilogram of cesium-134 and 137 measured. The radiation level of the lake water was not announced. And this is what they're going to have their children 
swim in. Japan is truly committing genocide against its children and against its future. So it's numbnuts, but this is really evil numbnuts. More news from Japan. And this all has to do with radiation levels and controlling the information. TEPCO has reported to the Nuclear Regulatory Authority, which is the new regulatory body in Japan, that the in-the-ground water storage pond number one is indeed leaking into the surrounding soil. Beta-nuclides are being detected in the water taken from either the drains or the leak detection pipes. And now that means that all seven of these in-the-ground storage ponds are leaking, meaning the water is going into the Pacific Ocean and joining all the rest of the radionuclides that are floating around there and coming towards the United States. In the single most recycled headline, the New York Times has stated that a new leak has been found at the Fukushima nuclear plant. The story about all seven of the -the in-the-ground ponds was filed as of April 12th. Now, on April 14, the New York Times says that TEPCO has found yet another leak, this time in the pipes that would be used to move the water from the below-ground storage to the above-ground storage. They also bother to call the new leak small. Nothing is small about TEPCO and the leaks. TEPCO has finally admitted that plutonium-238 from Fukushima was detected offshore, meaning in the ocean. Of course, TEPCO revealed this nine months after they knew it for sure. It was revealed on April 15, meaning yesterday. And complications to the water leaks at Fukushima have raised the risk that TEPCO may intentionally release radioactive wastewater into the Pacific. This in addition to the immeasurably large ongoing rad waste and cesium-saturated water being released accidentally every day. By the way, Dumping radioactive waste in the ocean has been internationally outlawed since 1994. Where is the world court when we need it? So Japan is having all these problems with leaks at Fukushima. And what is their response? To try and get rid of any anti-nuclear information or resistance that they can. Two items. On April 10, the Japan News covered the story that the government of Japan has sued two representatives of an anti-nuclear group that is continuing protest activities in a tent set up on the premises of the Economy, Trade, and Industry Ministry, which oversees power companies. We're going to try and find out if one of those who is being sued is Chieko Shina, who is one of the activists from Japan and one of the founders of those tents in Tokyo. She was interviewed by Nuclear Hot Seat, and we'll have a link to her interview as well up on the website. And here's another item from Mochizuki and Fukushima Diary. That's really a kicker. A citizen radiation researcher posted a video on March 21st of this year that states, In Hitachi City, Ibaraki, we were told not to compare the radiation readings of individual Geiger counters and official monitoring posts and not to take a video of this comparison. In the video, the radiation level indicated by the official monitoring post was significantly lower than the mobile Geiger counter. The mobile showed 0.15 microsieverts per hour, where the official monitoring post shows 0.05 microsieverts per hour. Ironically, the mobile Geiger counter used was rented from the city government. Three times as much radiation. Which radiation reading would you trust? So as I promised, this week was filled with stories on radiation levels, shocking revelations about Fukushima's ongoing leaks and dangers, and the lies, cover-up, and disinformation trying to knock the knees out from under those of us dedicated to getting the hard nuclear truths out. So I thought it was a good time to review information from some people who are up close and personal at Fukushima. Americans aboard the USS Ronald Reagan, naval personnel who were there as part of Operation Tomodachi, and humanitarian effort to help the people of Japan after the earthquake and tsunami. But what it did was put American military personnel in radioactive harm's way. The audio I'm about to share is from a presentation made by former quartermasters Jamie Plim and Maurice Ennis of the USS Ronald Reagan. It's from the Symposium on the Medical and Ecological Consequences of the Fukushima Nuclear Disaster, a symposium that was produced and sponsored in March of 2013 by Dr. Helen Caldicott and Physicians for Social Responsibility. 
Ennis and Plym were part of a group of initially eight naval personnel who have sued TEPCO, Tokyo Electric Power Company, for medical reimbursement for health damage caused by radiation exposure from the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. So with these two naval representatives, what problems to their health have come up? Why are they suing TEPCO? What has our military done to protect and support them? It's a shameful, heart-rending story. Give a listen. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Jamie Plim. Um, I'll just kind of give you a chronological timeline of what happened. Um, we were already on deployment in 2011. Uh, we we're about to pull into a routine port call in South Korea. Uh, we go to our navigation brief the night before we were going to pull in, um, and we found out that the tsunami and earthquake happened. Immediately, we knew that we were going to uh, reroute the ship to Japan to provide aid and, um, you know, give them food, water. Um, so we did that immediately. We probably got to the coast of Japan the, probably the day after it happened. Um, we never heard anything about a nuclear power plant. We never knew anything about the possibility, let alone any kind of leak. Um, so we were there outside... Our job as quartermasters um, is not only navigating the ship, driving, plotting our course and track, but going outside at the top of the ship to raise flags um, to communicate with other ships. Um, so being outside, we were breathing in this radiation. We were handling flags, which are porous, very porous material, obviously. Um, the ropes that we use to haul the flags up are polyester, so Again, a very um, porous material that just absorbed the radiation. Um, we didn't really hear anything for probably a couple weeks after about um, a leak in the uh, power plants. Um, and even then, it was just still considered kind of a rumor. We, the ship didn't really even go on lockdown, which I mean by that, like no one was allowed outside um, probably until about a month and a half after um, the initial, the, the 11th, March 11th. So um, we were outside breathing this in, handling stuff, handling materials, and just absorbing the radiation. I'll let Maurice talk about his um, medical issues that he's encountered, but I'll talk about mine. Um, we didn't finish that deployment until October 2011, so we carried on with our deployment. Um, about halfway through, probably around the summertime, my menstrual cycle just disappeared completely. And then it would come back and disappear and go on and off. And this happened until about the summer of 2012, where it came back in such full force that um, I was in and out of the emergency room. Um, once they thought they were going to have to do a blood transfusion on me because I had lost so much, <clears throat> um, they... I was still in the Navy for this past year. I got out this past January 2013, so I was still getting Navy care for that year. Um, they, I was already on the birth control pill, which I guess they would they would do to control that kind of uh, menstrual cycle. So the only thing that they could do is say, um, this is called dysfunctional uterine bleeding, and um, we can give you an IUD with hormones in it. And so now that's what I have. Um, it hasn't really stopped it. I still have this issue, and um, now I have to pay for the, the medical costs of that. In addition to that, in February 2012, I developed bronchitis, um, and then from February to the summer of 2012, I got it six times. I was sent to a respiratory doctor, and it was determined that I developed asthma. So a lot of people... Um, don't understand that once you get out of the Navy, you don't get any health care at all. Um, if you retire and you stay in 20 years, you get health care. But we only did one enlistment. I did five years, he did four, so we don't, we don't get that unless it's a disability, a service-related disability, which dysfunctional uterine bleeding does not really count as a disability as of yet. So we're still fighting that case, and this is also what we're involved in the lawsuit against TEPCO, um, for, for medical expenses that we're now having to, we're going to have to pay out of pocket for. I'll, I'll speed it up because I know I don't have much time. I'll start with uh, 
the beginning of my story where I received the radiation. A part of our job is we had to communicate with other ships using flags and uh, semaphore and Morse code when we're doing special operations. And uh, we store all our flags outside in a weather bag. Uh, we also fly our American flag, our ensign, at the highest point so people know we're the U.S. Navy. I was uh, told by one of the higher-ups to go out and retrieve the American flag so we can give it to the Japanese as a, as a, as a friendship type of deal, like a gift. Uh, I pulled the flag down. It's flapping when it wrapped around me. It got all over me. Uh, I folded it up. I took it down there. I gave it to them, and I'm not sure what they did with it, but I got off watch an hour later. I went to go get something to eat with uh, one of my uh, good friends. We stopped. I used the restroom, and we're just joking around because at the time there's still rumors going around about radiation being on the ship. And uh, we were joking around about like growing extra fingers and toes and stuff like that. And we were like, let's uh, stop and get checked for radiation because they started setting up these little checkpoints all along the ship. And they were saying, it's just a precaution. You don't have nothing to worry about. Uh, if you get some free time, just go get checked out. And we were joking and laughing and walking over there. And he gets checked first. And nothing happens. He gets his hands checked, and nothing happens. And he's, like, smirking like, I, I told you, this is a waste of time. And I get my boots checked, uh, my pants, and then my hands. And as soon as they get to my hands, the machine just goes crazy. And instantly, like, we went from, like, smiling to uh, just being nervous and scared. And uh, they instantly told everybody to back away from me. They made a perimeter around me, uh, and they marched me to a decon station the whole time. They were telling everybody to stand fast, which means stay in your place and back up. And everybody's just looking and freaking out. And uh, I had to hold my hands up, and I had bags on them. And they were telling everybody to contaminate the cellar. Everybody just get back, get back. And we make it to the decon station, and I see there's a huge pile of clothes there from other sailors. And I go in, and they had to remove three layers of skin off my hands and my arms. And it wasn't like back-to-back. -back. It was They would scrub off one layer, and then I would have to wash off this orange grit stuff that you used to get off paint and oil. And then they would do it over again and then check. And we'd start the process all over. So in my head, I was just kind of praying that the machine would stop beeping so I could get it over with. Like, and nobody told me at the time, like, what was going on. Everybody just kind of told me just to stand there and be quiet and not to touch anybody or anything. It was almost like I had to play. And uh, finally, it, the machine stopped beeping, and they let me go back to my birthing. And that's when I got to my birthing, and they called and asked me to come up on watch to relieve the people on watch. And they told me they had to receive the highest amount of radiation out of anybody on the ship. And then later we found out that our work area, since it was outside, had the highest readings for radiation because of all our flags and all our line that we used to haul up stuff. And uh, they cut off all the area to the rest of the ship. Well, you've got a few symptoms. Uh, like two months after, a lump appeared on my jaw. And uh, I went and got that looked at by the Navy Medical, and they told me that there was uh, nothing they could do about it while we are out to sea. We'd have to wait for us to pull in. And uh, another lump appeared between my eyes. Uh, I have another lump on my right thigh. As soon as I got out of the military, I went uh, back to college, and I started playing college sports again. And... I actually ran within like three seconds of an Olympic time for my track and field team. And slowly after that, my body just started to fall apart. It's harder for me to breathe now. It feels a lot like my lungs are too big for my, my body whenever I do something like strenuous. Uh, I lost a lot of weight from uh, the time I was in the Navy until now. I got stomach ulcers. Uh, and, uh, Your hair? 
in the last month and a half, my it doesn't look like it, but my my hair's started to fall out. I try to avoid brushing and combing it, and uh, I'll, I'll wash it like every three days, just because I, I just I don't. It's like Navy tradition. When you get out, you grow out your hair and you grow out your beard, and because you're bald for so long, and it like it's just, just falling out, man. And I don't want to speed that up, so I try to avoid it. And what did you have to sign? Like a little bit after we found out that the ship was radiated and we had finished up helping out, we left the area. And before we pulled into our first port since the disaster, we all had to sign this paperwork saying that the military is not to be held liable for for uh, anything that happened. And we had to sign paperwork saying that we weren't sick, that we were okay, and that they did tests on us. And it, it wasn't like a yes or no type of option. It was just like you have to sign it. I wanted to ask about the immediate time. Uh, one of the products that comes out of the nuclear plant is radioactive iodine that gets in your thyroid gland. Were you offered uh, potassium iodide tablets to block your thyroid? And do you know, were people on the ship taking uh, iodine tablets, potassium iodine tablets to protect their thyroids? What were you told about that? We personally, like, we never knew that you're supposed to take iodine for radiation. And I later found out that the higher-ups, like the CO, the XO, and anybody with, like, a really important job, they got iodine tablets. The pilots got the iodine tablets, but the general enlisted sailors, they, we didn't get iodine tablets. Uh, we actually had a talk, me and my boss, and I was always a hard worker for him, so we always had, like, a little friendship, like, joke around type of thing going on and I thought he was joking when he told me he was like did you get your radiation medicine and I was like radiation medicine is there's medicine for this and he had a smirk on his face and I was like you're messing with me he was like I got mine he was like you didn't get yours and I took it as he was just joking around and then later on we found out that they had gotten iodine tablets so the uh, one of the hallmarks of the nuclear industry is secrecy uh, cover up and minimization and they keep it a secret and it sounds like a lot was kept secret from you and perhaps still is uh, if you can't do that you cover it up and it sounds like that's happening to you and then the minimization uh, if you can't do the first two then it's no harm to you at all what has happened with your uh, care now uh, two questions did you ever get a thyroid scan and have you um, are you are you have your medical records available? What's happened with that? Uh, directly after I got out, I kind of we were told. Uh, I hate to say, it, but we were all, it was almost like we were brainwashed because we were told that we didn't receive that much radiation. That the amount of radiation we got was the equivalent of standing next to somebody smoking a cigarette or suntanning on the beach for a whole day. So I had it in my head that not to worry about it. And actually, between Jamie crying at night saying you got to get checked after more lumps started appearing and everything else, we started trying to get my medical records while we were state while Jamie was still in the Navy and stationed in Washington. And they actually lost all the medical stuff uh, that I was involved with around that time. All they had was my records from boot camp, which was like a flu shot and other stuff. The uh, secrecy and cover-ups no different uh, than when we used to set off nuclear weapons in Nevada and we would march soldiers down to ground zero after the blast wave occurred with no monitoring of their radiation exposure whatsoever. And it sounds like you have gone through a similar process now. How little changes. Are you getting any medical care? No, um... Like we said, I was in the Navy for the past year, so I, I, I did see the Navy gynecologist for my issues and the respiratory doctor, but um, they didn't give me any, like I said, they gave me a general term for a diagnosis and, and said, oh, well, we'll just give you an IUD. Um, and he was out the past year. He got it exactly a year before me. Um, and like I said, without any medical care or any 
benefits as far as, as this goes in with him losing his record. We haven't been able to receive any care. So, Maurice, have you ever been exact, uh, fully examined by a doctor? I've never been fully examined. The closest thing I got to it was a couple of months after this scrub, they called me down to medical and they made me uh, sit next to a machine just to see what was going on. And they told me I was good to go after that. And they told me they would keep tabs on me, but it never happened once I got out of the military. Just talk about the helicopters for a minute. Um, the We were on an aircraft carrier, so the helicopters are the ones that um, flew over onto land and uh, to take food and water and supplies. And they would come back, um, obviously, with radiation on the outside of them, so they would come back to the flight deck. And the people in the air department um, had to take, you know, push brooms and soap and water and uh, scrub the sides of the helicopters. And obviously that just drains off into the ocean. There's nowhere for it to go. And that's how they clean the radiation off of the, uh, off of the helicopters. Not only that, but... I'm sorry. Not only that, but... We were trying to stay out of the winds, but for us to launch our helicopters, we need wind to lift them off the flight deck. So during the special evolutions, we were launching launching our aircrafts. We had to go into the winds, which meant more radiation. And the ship is now being in port, being decontaminated, is it, the aircraft carrier? No, it's a um, it's in dry dock, and they actually just left. I think yesterday, but they were in dry dock for a year. But it's a routine. Every ten years, the ship goes in there. So Bob Alvarez just has a something to say. Um, just very briefly, um, having worked in the energy department, um, I'm familiar with the assets the U.S. government has, and uh, I would not be surprised that the you were on an aircraft carrier, correct? Or, yes. Okay. Um, that um, the U.S. has aerial radiological monitoring, which the military has on a continual basis, and so does the Department of Energy. And so uh, they have probably done very extensive um, data collection, including a collection of uh, cloud samples, as well as doing uh, remote sensing using lithium-germanium detectors so they could literally take a, a picture of what the uh, uh, energy readings would be coming off the ground as a function of distance and the like. Uh, when the United States exploded nuclear weapons in the open air, there were about 250,000 military personnel who took part in these shots. And the, the, it turned out that some of the most highly exposed groups were the ones who were uh, maintaining the aircraft, washing them down. Um, the other question I had, did anybody... Did they take any samples of your urine or any of your internal fluids at all? Did you have a whole body count? They didn't do that for anybody on the ship. Dr. Caldicott then opened up the session for questions from the media. These questions were asked off mic and are very hard to hear, so I will interject what was asked so you can follow the discussion. The first is, did anyone tell you what radiation dose you received? When it first happened, they took me down there to the decon station. They were all talking and whispering and talking to each other. And I was trying to listen in, and I could never hear how much I actually received. But they told me that all the people that was radiated later on, my boss told me. Well, he was talking to somebody else, and he was yelling. He was like, I want to know how did the guy in our department get the highest count of radiation on his ship? He's not even in the air department. And after that, that's when our whole department got sent down there to get tested for radiation. And uh, they locked down all our weather decks, but they never told me the exact number of what I received. So, the, in fact, the Navy and the U.S. government absolutely knew uh, what they were be- being exposed to purposefully, yet they can't sue the U.S. government, so they're suing TEPCO for lying to them. But in fact, it's the U.S. government who's lying, and... Jeff and I, and I think Andy would be prepared to go to court to support these people who are suing TEPCO and maybe the U.S. government. How close were you to the nuclear reactors and how long were you in the area? We were in the um, area of the coast of Japan for um, about two months 
And in that time, we um, went from anywhere from one mile off the coast to 10 miles. And we just kind of went back and forth and did circles up, down, east, west. We um, kind of just kept moving, but we would get one to two miles from the coast very frequently. Yeah. Right. From, that's, what I, that's what I mean. From the plants, we would get one to two miles from it. You're going to mention uh, the triangle. And the, so what we did was um, we plotted, um, we have our big charts of the ocean, we plotted the, the latitude and longitude of the plant. Um, basically we drew a, a line 50 miles east of the plant, and then, you know, they used some calculation to make a triangle, and that was the plume that we were supposed to stay out of, but as we all know that it just floats around, so. We were actually briefed not to, like, tell the rest of the crew since we did get a lot of information before everybody else because we had to know where we were going and if it was safe and what was the best route to take not to tell the rest of the crew about the radiation plume or the parameters that we're operating in. Were other people hurt and are they speaking out? And is there any sympathy within the ranks up the chain of command that people are sick because of the exposure? There's um, over a hundred other people involved in the lawsuit. Um, we're the only two that we know of in our, we had a small department and it's just rare for us. We go outside to do the flags and stuff, but it's so small. The rest of the people are from air department. Um, so there are a lot of people, we don't know them personally. It's such a big ship, but, um, we're getting to, we're talking to them and everything. And so they, they already came forward, um, and they're involved and, um, there's actually, like, since our interview last night that aired on TV, a bunch of people have emailed Jamie, like, higher-ups, like senior chiefs, saying that they were sick. And uh, I think they're going to try to get involved. Uh, a lot of the other people we, we didn't know, and we kind of talked to through our lawyer, Paul, and find out about their stories. Has there been any attempt to shut you down, to silence you? Not yet. We're afraid of that, but not yet. Have you had an attorney take a look at the validity of this coerced waiver that you signed? From the time you join until you get out, you lose all your rights. Uh, when you actually are joining to go to boot camp, you have to sign paperwork saying that you're now uh, property of the United States government, so you can't sue them for anything. And then that was just another reinsurance. Our lawyer does have the, he, he does, well, he is aware of it, and, um, we're, we're trying to find copies of it somewhere. Yeah. We'll see. A mostly inaudible question seemed to be about the ability to communicate on the ship and get outside information. In any kind of situation like that, they cut off um, the cable, internet, um, phones, so that you can't really get rumors, you can't get bad information, you can't share information, just as a protective measure. So we didn't know... Um, that this had happened, and when they when they did, probably about a month, maybe around a month and a half later, tell us, hey, we need to draw this radiation plume to stay out of, but don't tell everybody else because it's, you know, it's it's really safe. We're just taking precautionary, and we don't want to, um, everybody on the ship to, you know, get all worried, and everybody, you know, would cause an uproar with 5,000 people, so. Actually, we were told it, it was, uh, we never knew the plants actually blew up we were told it was a small leak and they were just taking precaution that's why we're putting it on a chart and it would be they would update the digital part so because there was digital touch screens all on the bridge of where we were and where the ship was in relativity to land and they would update it our head our department head and then they would have us updated on the charts on the paper charts so every day like the parameter would change and uh, we would put down a new territory where we couldn't go in. And then finally it just stayed in that area. And they told us not to go out and add to the rumor mill because right now they were just taking precautions not to get everybody to get all panicky. Another inaudible question seemed to ask them about their mental status at this time. It's still kind of, like he said, we sometimes are brainwashed and thinking that, oh, everything's fine, they wouldn't do that to us. So it is a, it's a very, it's a weird situation to be in.
when this was going on, there was people trying to commit suicide. There was people trying to get off the ship. Uh, it was like you're living in fear every day. It is horrible. That was former quartermasters Jamie Plim and Maurice Ennis of the USS Ronald Reagan. There will be more information from them at the end of this podcast. The full archive of videos and PowerPoints from this milestone symposium on Fukushima are available at nuclearfreeplanet.org. Scroll down and click on the link for totalwebcasting.com. The full URL is a little too complex to read out here, but we will have a link, of course, on the website, nuclearhotseat.com. Click on the blog page. Check under this week's episode, which is number 96. Here's today's final thought. And it's a horrible one. The United States conducted unspeakable radiation experiments with pregnant women, infants, and many others who had no power. In large-scale experiments as late as 1985, the Energy Department deliberately produced reactor meltdowns which spewed radiation across Idaho and beyond. The Air Force conducted at least eight deliberate meltdowns in the Utah desert, dispersing 14 times the radiation released by the partial meltdown of the Three Mile Island nuclear reactors in Pennsylvania in 1979. The military even dumped radiation from planes and spread it across wide areas around and downwind of Oak Ridge, Tennessee, Los Alamos, New Mexico, and Dugway, Utah. This, quote, Systematic Radiation Warfare Program, end quote, was conducted between 1944 and 1961 and kept secret for 40 years. Radiation bombs thrown from United States Air Force planes intentionally doused Utah with 60 times more radiation than escaped at Three Mile Island, according to Senator John Glenn, Democrat of Ohio, who released a report on the program 20 years ago. Victims included civilians, prison inmates, federal workers, hospital patients, pregnant women, infants, developmentally disabled children, and military personnel, most of them powerless, poor, sick, elderly, or terminally ill. This is covered in Eileen Wellsom's 1999 expose, The Plutonium Files, America's Secret Experiments in the Cold War. And it details, quote, the unspeakable scientific trials that reduced thousands of men, women, and even children to nameless specimens here in the United States. In a rare public condemnation, Clinton Administration Energy Secretary Hazel O'Leary confessed to Newsweek in 1994, who were these people and why did this happen? The only thing I could think of was Nazi Germany. None of the victims were provided follow-up medical care. Which begs the question, who are we as a country? What do we really believe? What do we stand for? And how do we get America, the dream of America, the one that I was raised to believe in, how do we get it back? This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, April 16, 2013. Material for this week's show came from enenews.com, Iori Mochizuki and Fukushima Diary, Mary Olson of Nears.com, the ever-popular Harvey Wasserman and Solartopia, naturalnews.com, the Canadian Press, The Hill, rt.com, metronews.ca, Coalition Against Nukes, xskf.blogspot, New York Times, Bloomberg, thejapannews.com, Global Security Newswire. From the belly of the beast, we got word from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and Tokyo Electric Power Company. And, of course, we always receive updates and information from the ever-popular, ever-vigilant, ever-fabulous, darling, fabulous, Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community. I want to give a special shout-out to Zach Nocamico Ruder up in Toronto for stepping up to help me get the word out. Muchas gracias, amigo. I'm still in need of team members to help with website, social media, and linking Nuclear Hot Seat to websites and uploads and clouds and all that good stuff. Any groups and individuals with compatible beliefs. If you want to join our community of dedicated media activists, send an email to me at info at nuclearhotseat.com or you can message me on Facebook. 
We're going to be going out with more from former naval personnel Jamie Plim and Morris Ennis of the USS Ronald Reagan. This also from the symposium put together by Dr. Caldecott and Physicians for Social Responsibility. This is unedited audio from a series of press interviews held after the formal presentation, which you've already heard. There are lots of interesting nuggets to be gained for it, so leave it running in the background and give a listen. A reminder, Nuclear Hot Seat is a completely volunteer project with ongoing expenses, otherwise known as HELP! So if you like what you hear, if you get a laugh, anger, and awareness or inspiration to take action from listening, please acknowledge this by donating. Go to the homepage at NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down, hit the Donate button, follow the prompts, be as generous as you possibly can. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues, so use us and support us as the resource we are. And I mean it. If you've got a story lead, hot tip, a suggestion of someone to interview, I want to know about it. Send me an email at info at nuclearhotseat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, do not go back to sleep. Libby Halevi from uh, Nuclear Hot Seat Podcast. I'd like to know, in terms of the female, the gynecological problems that you're having, have you been told anything about the possibility of having children? That's our biggest fear right now. It, I mean, honestly, that's our biggest fear because obviously that's in the that's in the plans for us in the future, and um, the, all they keep saying, all they've told me, and like I said, all all it was was Navy doctors, but they they gave me the IUD and said, oh, this will clear up soon, and then um, by the time you guys get married and are ready to have kids, you'll um, you'll be fine, and that's what they keep saying. Oh, it, it'll it'll just give us some time. The IUD will work. Well, if I was already on birth control. And it didn't do anything. How they say it's stronger, and they just say when you're ready, um, you'll be fine. What you expect, you know, how you expect to tackle to react to the. Um, Well, I I mean, like we said, we don't have any medical care, and Mm -hmm. and um, you know, we were lied to. So our our goal from this is to get money for medical care because it's it's expensive, Mm -hmm. and we don't have anything. So Mm -hmm. that's our goal. So um, how do you think the technical is responsible for the situation that you suffered? Um, they lied. They, they told us. Initially, we heard directly from them that there was everything was under control and everything was safe. And um, there was no leak. There wasn't going to be a leak. And they had everything under control. So then that's why we went in to provide aid for the people. And um, so... Sorry, who initially TEPCO, uh, Tokyo Electrical Power. This is the press. I'm sorry. My contract was up, and at that time, you can make a decision if you want to re-enlist, stay in, or get out and go to school. And and um, I mean, it had a little bit to do with it, but I think um, overall, I I wanted to go out and and go to college and and just do something different. What's your Right now, um, there's not a set um, dollar now. That's another thing to, um, that, to talk to the lawyer about. But um, really, we just want our medical stuff paid for. I mean, that's the, that's, we just want to be okay. What's the next step? Just to continue the lawsuit and see what happens. How many people are currently? It two years Why it's now? Um, we, we didn't really make the connection that, I mean, the lawsuit just now kind of started, and we didn't really make the connection that our, now in hindsight, it makes perfect sense, but at first, you know, we're so brainwashed, like we said a couple times, that we didn't realize that our um, symptoms, we, we just thought they appeared in thin air, which doesn't make any sense, but then we were like, oh, yeah, we forgot about that. So, I mean, it's kind of like we... We were in a different mindset, but now looking back, we're like, yeah. And I just got out of the Navy, so while I was still in, I couldn't really do anything. What is your largest concern? Yes, uh, the, my our health is the biggest concern, and that, that's why we're doing this. Because like, like she was saying, you know, having kids, he has lumps in his face. I mean, it's we want to. We're praying, but I don't know how to do that if I don't ever stop bleeding. So two, two and a half, almost three years. So yes. Since um, I, I, I rarely get it. I mean, since last summer. I mean, if if it if it does stop, it's it's very light. It, it never really stops. No, and um, 
I haven't 5,000 people on the ship, so I, we don't know the other girls. Um, but we're in the process of talking to all of them and, and seeing how that how that pans out, and I'm sure there are other. So how many people? Like, um, yes, and I know that one of the girls had a miscarriage. So, how many people are currently involved in the lawsuit, and can that number grow? Uh, it is over a hundred that I know of. The number can grow. Um, I, more people are coming up um, with big health concerns. Um, a, the same thing. Just didn't realize that. Why am I getting these weird health issues? And then, and then, seeing our interview last night actually brought a lot of people out. So, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, all I know is that she had the miscarriage um, uh, soon after, so I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know her. Um, I just know that she's involved in this suit, so I, I don't know. Maybe Paul, maybe the lawyer could answer that. When you were there, when they started measuring Reese's radiation, that was at a month, and a half after the event? When they... know about radiation? When they found when his Geiger counter when he when he got his hands checked and he got scrubbed that was um, probably about um, a month and a half after the initial fallout because that's when they started taking things seriously and you know we'd already been outside a hundred times since then um, and then after that they ch- like he said they checked his chest for something he doesn't know and then it was nothing they just stopped caring. Um, I think I think it I think they probably thought that it wasn't a concern. I'm not I don't know what they were thinking, but I know that um and he, he didn't mention No, I, no. Everybody got everybody um, the people that did the helicopter, the pilots and the higher ups, they got their iron pills afterwards and we learned from Dr. Caldercott. Well, after the after in the, after the fallout and after they'd already been outside flying, so we learned from Dr. Caldecott that it doesn't matter anyway. You have to have them before. So, um, and there's actually there was a registry that they started for all the people that did get radiated, so that they would keep in touch with them after the Navy, um, and follow their health, their health concerns. But they shut it down because the average for the sailors was so low that it didn't make a difference. Well, that's the problem. Some people. Most people work inside the skin of the ship and don't ever have to go outside, so that's why the average is low. I don't know. Um, I know that we had other ships in our battle group at the time, maybe like two or three, but they were smaller and, and they didn't have helicopters to go take supplies. So I don't even know if they were as close as we were, if they were outside. I don't know what they what they did. About five thousand. Jamie, we're hearing a contradiction, uh, Dennis. I just want to be, like, for instance, NPR and other news sources are reporting that the real problem is not radiation, but it's psychological, and people are all upset. If they weren't upset and they had more information, uh, they they wouldn't have all these complaints. What's your response to that? Well, I think um, that's actually a really good um, um, question because uh, the medical issues that we're talking about came up before the thought even connected to us that they were resulted from the radiation we just we initially thought that we developed lumps and these problems um out of the blue which in hindsight like I said doesn't make any sense but that's how I would argue that it's not psychological because we didn't even use the radiation um reasoning at first we so that's that's how I can answer that so, so you might say it's actually about not having, it's not having enough information, but it's not about the psychological side of it. It's, they're saying if you had more information, you'd understand that there's nothing to worry about. And you're saying the more information that you get, the more you're worried. I mean, that's true, too. I, I mean, I'm, I was already, once I made the connection, I, I did my own research, and I, I kind of educated myself because we'd never been educated before, which is another way that, you know, that's we didn't know that there was that connection and now that you know we are and we we know our health i mean since being educated it's not like our health has declined any i mean it's 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 been bad and it's staying bad so um the education is just giving us um is just helping us understand not making making the problems worse or anything like that during the lockdown when you were not allowed communications on the ship what did that do to people's awareness of what was going on and what was the response what happened to the mood on the ship Oh, everybody just kind of panicked, and um, once they did lock the doors, everybody did kind of panic and say, wow, this is real, so. 
What's happened to you psychologically since? How, how have you changed? What's been your sort of feeling? We're pretty, we're pretty positive that we're going to be able to get um, the medical care. I mean, that might be crazy, but we, we try and stay pretty positive. So the only, the only thing that does really bother us is, um, you know, once we start thinking about it, 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 it is very scary, and um, we don't know what these lumps are. We don't know if we're going to be able to have children. That's the, that's the thing that causes us to kind of freak out.